the ladies appeared at the polls on election day by the hundreds of thousands. We're clearly soldiers in petticoats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. She thinks Congress is going to suddenly roll over and give women the vote. I thought you said she was bright. Celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote is definitely something worth toasting to. It was on August 18, 1920, that the 19th Amendment was ratified to the United States Constitution. But that amendment didn't give all women the right to vote. And 1920 didn't end the fight for suffrage, either. So on today's show, we're going to talk about not just the anniversary, but also the campaign for the right to vote that continued after the 19th Amendment was ratified, and that still continues. Then, a little later in the show, we'll also have an update on the Democratic Party's big convention and why that track changes feature is so important. But before we do that, speaking of voting, there's one thing that a lot of voters across the U.S. are concerned about for this year's election. Voting by mail. Who would have thought that this week's rapidly developing story would be about snail mail? President Trump's newly appointed Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, imposing strict cost-cutting measures. Saying it cannot guarantee all ballots cast by mail will arrive in time to be counted. The future of the U.S. Postal Service remains uncertain. That was last weekend. And this week, the story has become even more complicated. The U.S. Postmaster General says he'll delay controversial changes at the Postal Service. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is backing down. Backing down from those controversial changes to handling the mail, which includes mail ballots, until this election is over. Okay, so what's actually going on at the U.S. Postal Service? First, some context. The U.S. Postal Service delivers mail to tens of millions of Americans— and its job description is literally laid out in the U.S. Constitution. But it hasn't been a great year for the agency because of its budget. Exactly how the Postal Service manages its budget is a long story, and especially so since it's not treated like most other government agencies. Historically, the Postal Service doesn't receive federal tax dollars. That's one major reason why it relies on selling things like stamps to stay afloat. We're talking about a lot of stamps. Another thing that's unusual, the Postal Service is the only government agency that's required to pre-fund benefits for retirees. That expense costs the USPS billions of dollars a year and makes it hard to turn a profit when something like COVID-19 hits. And the pandemic has caused the Postal Service to fall into billions of dollars of more debt. All this has been going on as the agency got a new boss, Louis DeJoy. The U.S. Postal Service's Board of Governors appointed him as the new Postmaster General back in May. And DeJoy's efforts seem to be focused on reducing that debt. So in recent weeks, he started implementing some big changes, like cutting overtime and reducing post office hours. While these changes are meant to help cut costs, they could also mean that mail delivery slows down. So everything from a birthday card to a mail-in ballot could possibly be delayed. And that has some people really worried about the November election, because more Americans are expected to vote by mail this year than ever before. And remember, since the pandemic began, President Trump has issued warnings about voting by mail, claiming that voting by mail leads to voter fraud. Those claims are largely unproven, but they've helped make this a contentious issue as the election gets closer. 
Now, faced with the possibility that key votes might not get counted because of delivery delays, lawmakers are getting busy. On Monday, Democratic leaders said that these moves by the new Postmaster General were aimed at sabotaging the election. Then on Tuesday, the Postmaster General said he was suspending any operational changes to how the Postal Service does business until after the election. And he said until the big vote, he won't remove any mail sorting machines or those iconic blue mailboxes. But that doesn't look like it's enough. The Postal Service's own Inspector General is continuing to investigate the recent changes made at the agency. And wait for it. Today, DeJoy will be spending his morning testifying before the Senate. And then the House on Monday morning. So we could get some answers soon about what's going on with the mail. Meanwhile, lawmakers are also looking at options to fund the Postal Service. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called the House back from their month-long vacation. A vacation that sounds pretty nice right about now. They're expected to vote on the Delivering for America Act, which was revised to include an emergency measure to give the USPS a $25 billion lifeline. But it appears unlikely that the Republican-led Senate, who are currently still on recess until September, will put it to a vote. Instead, Senate Republicans have drafted a proposal for a smaller COVID-19 relief bill that would include $10 billion in funding for the USPS. Now, even as lawmakers on Capitol Hill figure out what to do, some prominent Democrats are starting to say, vote in person if you can, just in case. Here was former First Lady Michelle Obama during the Democratic National Convention this week. We've got to vote early, in person if we can, We've got to request our mail-in ballots right now, tonight, and send them back immediately and follow up to make sure they're received and then make sure our friends and families do the same. And that's not all. Mrs. Obama literally told voters to pack a meal, or maybe two meals, in a paper bag and prepare for long lines at the polls. No matter how or where you cast a ballot, the skim is here to help. For all the info you need to vote on your terms, head on over to theskim.com slash 2020. I was born 8 one That's right. That's a long, long time ago. Right. This week marks 100 years since the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which says women in the U.S. cannot be denied the right to vote. We wanted to know what it was like to be among the first women in the U.S. to grow up with that right. So we called up... Hi, sweetie. Our grandmas. You talk about politics and voting in the house when you were growing up? Probably, probably a little bit. This is Florence Blatt. Yeah, it would depend on who was running and different presidents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would discuss it and... Uh, my parents read an awful lot, so they knew what was going on. Which election do you remember the most? Probably Jack Kennedy's, because he was very popular. And yeah. also Ro Ro uh, Franklin Roosevelt was also uh, very well liked by the people. Yes. Mm -hmm. But was Jack Kennedy, he was special. He really was, yeah. And this is Arlene Croner. Hi, my name is Arlene, and I'm 85 years old. Arlene told us about the first time she voted at a local grammar school. I remember the first time I voted because I was so excited. There was so much 
aliveness and and really caring for one another and wanting to help people. And so that was what I enjoyed. After a few of us skimmers called up our grandmas, we realized they were each a part of a historic generation of American women able to vote for the first time. My name is Anne German, G-E-R-M-A-N. Anne is just a few weeks away from her 96th birthday. Her parents came to America in 1920, the same year the 19th Amendment was ratified. Do you remember any elections in particular that stood out to you as being really important um, or anyone that really stood out over the years? Yes, during the war it was important and we voted for Roosevelt. We felt that Roosevelt was a friend to us and he was important in our lives and we we liked what he had established. Why do you think it's important for people to vote? Well, voting is a privilege, and it is important, and everyone should vote. Women were not allowed to vote until I think it was 1921, and I think every American should take that privilege, and they should vote. Every vote counts. We're right up there with the men. In fact, we're smarter than some of the men, so therefore we should be allowed to go in and vote our views and someday they hope to be see I should say a woman running for presidency which they laughed at for all those years it's very important to vote for the one you think is best for our country and it's your duty to vote people that don't pay attention uh, have nothing on their mind you have to be invested in things like this to speak about it. It's very important. Women's suffrage is a long story of hard work and heartache. At least 1,000 legal enactments were necessary, and every one was a struggle against ignorant opposition. The woman you just heard now is Carrie Chapman Catt, the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, back in August 1920, a hundred years ago. And she's right. The fight to pass the 19th Amendment was a struggle. It took decades. Even at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, in which hundreds gathered to discuss the, quote, social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women, not everyone, including the husband of organizer Elizabeth Cady Stanton, agreed that one of those rights should be the right to vote. A filmed reenactment of the Seneca Falls Convention by the National Park Service captured Stanton's historic words, when she put a small but powerful tweak on the Declaration of Independence while reading out her own Declaration of Sentiments, and caused a stir because of it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed, that all men and women are created equal. In the late 1800s, a few Western states and territories were among the first to allow women to vote, places like Utah and Wyoming. But the effort to pass these laws across the country stalled until the early 1900s. Within the suffrage movement, there were also troubles. Black women in particular were excluded from suffrage organizations, and some white suffragists wanted to keep events segregated. And after the 19th Amendment passed, the struggles for many women of color across the U.S. continued. My name is Ida Jones. I'm the university archivist at Morgan State University. 
Dr. Jones says that while the women's suffrage timeline most often taught in school stretches from 1848 to 1920, that's not the full story. We formally marked it as 1848 with Seneca Falls, the convention there. African-American women were not there. Latina, Asian, or indigenous women were not there. This is a really important thing to remember about the 19th Amendment. Because on paper, the 19th Amendment said states couldn't deny people the right to vote based on sex. But especially for non-white Americans, having the right to vote and actually being able to vote are two very different things. For instance, Native American men and women weren't even granted citizenship until 1924. And even then, some states used laws to deny Native Americans the right to vote until the 1960s. Chinese immigrants were also denied citizenship, and thus the right to vote, until a law called the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943. And for Black Americans, the fight to be able to vote without interference took even longer, and continues to this day. That's because in most states, the America of 1920 contained countless roadblocks preventing Black men and women from exercising their rights. Those roadblocks included poll taxes, which were essentially fees charged for voting. The cost of those poll taxes might not sound like a lot, sometimes a dollar or a dollar fifty at the time. But in today's terms, that was around $10. Too high, historians say, for many Black Southerners locked in cycles of debt to be able to pay, and thus to be able to vote. Certain white voters were given exemptions from having to pay these poll taxes, but not Black voters. Literacy tests were also used before and after the 19th Amendment to make it more difficult for Black Americans to vote. Those tests sometimes contain questions designed to confuse respondents, or essay prompts that gave local and state officials a lot of leeway to pick and choose who passed. These Jim Crow-era restrictions were in place for decades, until poll taxes were finally banned in federal elections in 1964. And it wasn't until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 that literacy tests were outlawed, too. Here was President Lyndon B. Johnson introducing that act to Congress. The Constitution says that no person shall be kept from voting because of his race or his color. We have all sworn an oath before God to support and to defend that Constitution. We must now act in obedience to that oath. Several months after that speech, the Voting Rights Act was finally signed into law. That's one reason 1965 is often talked about right alongside 1920 as a key moment in the fight for suffrage. Though, we should add, many voting rights advocates still say voter ID rules, or laws preventing felons from voting, continue to disenfranchise voters in the United States. So, even 55 years after the Voting Rights Act, this fight for equal voting rights is far from over. In addition to expanding the timeline of the women's suffrage movement, Dr. Jones thinks it's about time that suffragists get credit for being the radicals that they were. Oh, and a quick note on vocab. Jones uses suffragists instead of suffragettes, which was a term actually coined in England to condescend the suffrage movement as being womanly and of lesser importance. The ETT is supposed to be feminizing and kind of... Um, it was, it was a backhanded compliment, in other words. Let me just put it like that. So we in the profession call suffragists. We don't submit to suffragette. Anyway, back to those badass suffragists. We asked Dr. Jones if the passage of time has kind of made the women who fought for the right to vote seem a little more black and white. 
in a faded picture kind of way than they really were? Her answer was, unfortunately, yes. These women were basically, I I want to call them Amazons or something, but they really were very agitated and very active in their agitation to risk physical harm. When thousands of suffragists staged a march through Washington the day before the presidential inauguration of 1913, some were violently attacked by onlookers as the police stood by. Then in 1917, several dozen suffragists were arrested for protesting outside the White House and then essentially tortured at a prison in Northern Virginia. They actually were being force-fed by mouth or through their nose with tubes to the point where they were caused bleeding and other kinds of physical distress because they were considered basically insubordinate. They were actually locked up in mental asylums and being called lunatics. So there were such derogatory ideas that women's norms were to basically be under the shadow of a man, your husband, your father, your eldest son. And so as a result, if you stepped out of that gender-defined role, something is wrong with you. Between the attack on the march in 1913 and the torture of activists in that Virginia prison four years later, the suffragist cause might have actually gained cultural prominence and won over new supporters, but not before thousands of women put themselves in harm's way first to fight for what they deserved. So between expanding the timeline of the suffrage movement, including the contributions of non-white suffragists, and remembering that some women literally had to risk their lives to earn their rights, this story is hardly set in stone. 100 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the story of the fight for suffrage is still being told and discovered through efforts like the National Votes for Women Trail. But the National Votes for Women's Trail is a virtual canvas of the country. All volunteer organizations and volunteer persons who are seeking to extricate local history on suffrage. Dr. Jones is one of those volunteers, and she says the history of the suffrage movement is being revealed all across the country. So the National Votes for Women's Trails have markers that are physically going to be designated, but then they're also a virtual map of all the spaces around the country where you can go and visit where persons participated and sacrificed for the right to vote. So far, the project contains at least 1,600 sites across the country, including the locations of historic marches, speeches, and the homes of famous suffragists. Check it out and contribute at ncwhs.org. And like we did, ask the women in your life to share their stories, because the fight to vote lives on. Is there anything else that you think it's important for, you know, our audience to know about the importance of voting and why it is so important to vote? Well, it's a privilege. You have to be a decent citizen to vote. And and anyone who is a citizen should take advantage of that uh, privilege. I love you so much. I love you, too. Tell Grandpa to say bye. Okay. Love you, Grandma. I'll call you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Before we go today, we've got a brief update about what went down at the Democratic National Convention this week. Overall, there wasn't a lot of news to report, and that's usually the case. Conventions are mostly about celebrating the presidential ticket and giving viewers at home all the feels. To my brother and me, you'll always be Mamala, the world's greatest stepmom. So let me tell you about my friend, Joe Biden. Joe was a regular. He bought rounds of coffee for fellow passengers and crew, and he got to know the people he traveled with. But one thing that does get done at conventions is agreeing on a party platform. 
Think of a platform like a mission statement or a wish list of what a political party wants to get done in Washington, if nobody stood in the way. Which brings us to one part of the Democratic platform that caused some controversy this week. It's about climate change, and in particular, about ending tax breaks and financial subsidies for fossil fuel companies. Those subsidies are basically government funds used to make something cheaper, like the construction of a new oil well. Meanwhile, climate activists and even the head of the UN say these subsidies need to end, so that pollution is as economically costly as it is costly for the planet. Democrats even called to end these subsidies in their 2016 platform. Then-candidates Joe Biden and Kamala Harris also campaigned against these subsidies during the 2020 primary. And language calling for an end to those subsidies actually made it into an earlier draft of this year's platform. But this week, right before the Democratic platform was finalized, that language about ending fossil fuel subsidies disappeared. The Huffington Post first reported this, and since then, climate activists have been speaking out, worried that the Democratic Party isn't willing to make the tough financial choices necessary to go green. Activist Greta Thunberg even weighed in on Twitter, suggesting that, on the environment, Democrats hadn't even done, quote, the very, very minimum. So what happened here? On Wednesday, the Biden campaign's top policy director tweeted, Biden is still committed to ending fossil fuel subsidies. Though she didn't say why that pledge wasn't in the platform. Meanwhile, another top Democrat told the news outlet Axios that the language on ending subsidies was deleted by mistake. The kind of screw up that happens when everyone's editing a document over Zoom. If that's the case, maybe it's a lesson for all of us to be careful about who you give edit permissions to and to always track changes because just a few deleted words can cause quite a lot of confusion. To read the 2020 Democratic platform for yourself, we've left a link to it in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr, Marin Lozano, Julia Nutter, and Luke Vargas. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 